Thank you for listening to the Matt's Movie Reviews podcast, available on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Stitcher. Also, please follow Matt's Movie Reviews on Facebook, YouTube, LinkedIn, Reddit, Instagram, and MeWe. And of course, be sure to visit mattsmoviereviews.net for the latest reviews, top 10 lists, and more. Now, on to the show. sell you 200 pounds we don't really do anything less than that yeah it's just a big chunk of change well maybe you're in the wrong business then (laughs) no i don't think that's the case look i want to talk to your guy my guy the big guy the guy you collect for let's vince you don't want to mess with these dudes i don't see many more options and you're here to borrow some money yeah yeah Maybe we can go talk about this in private. You're amongst friends here. You've done it all, baby. There's nothing left to prove. Hello and welcome to the Matt's Movie Reviews Podcast. I am your host, Matthew Perkovich, and this is episode number 501. Out now in theaters and video on demand across the US is The Last Deal, a crime thriller that stars Anthony Molinari as Vince, a successful black market cannabis dealer who finds himself in a downward spiral when cannabis becomes legal and he is squeezed out of the business a stylish and engrossing crime thriller that breathes new life into the Los Angeles crime movie. The Last Deal also marks the latest film by director and writer Jonathan Salemi. And Jonathan, I thank you so very much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. It's really interesting. I talk to a lot of indie filmmakers all the time, and a lot of the times the successful way to make a film, especially uh, an independent film, comes about with what resources you have at at your disposal. It could be a place, it could be a setting. In your case, you had access to cannabis fields and planes and hangars. That in itself is a movie in itself. It feels like at the start <laughs> right. of, a, of some type of uh, like you know, cartel film. How did you come about that you had access to those things? And when did you know when looking at that stuff, you thought, you know what, I can use this stuff in a film? Good question. So it was around like 2017 or 2018. I um I knew I needed to make something that was more commercial that people would watch. And so what I basically did was it's like, I wrote a list, like, what do I have access to? Like, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. And I put like marijuana fields, airplanes, skydivers, uh, trains, um, locations around Los Angeles that I know about. And I just put them all there. And what I was looking for was a story that I could incorporate those elements. So it felt very big. And it took me a bit to find the right story to tell. And then once I had the story to tell, then I could infuse those elements into the story. Um, and I had a bunch more that just weren't organically fitting within the story, so I couldn't use them. But um, it was it was a early calculated move um, of of using, like you said, the resources around you. Is it true that the um, the John Cassavetes film, um, Killing of a Chinese Bookie, is that the film that you watched that kind of like really said to you, hey, that's a kind of like the, the direction of the film that I can really 
and go here um, to kind of like the the broad strokes of what that film does uh, with um, Ben Gazzara? It was exactly that. So it was, I think, I still have the text. It was like October 19th, 2019. I I watched that movie for the first time. And, um, you know, it's very gritty, very uh, realistic. Um, like the camera goes out of focus every now and then. But it was like a classic, like Cassavetes kind of film. And I was like, hey, I can make that. Like, I just need a really good DP, um, get my actors. And I'm close with this with a well-known stunt uh, coordinator, Carlos Safarlio. So I was like, I can put those in there and I can make that story. Because in that story, your main character gets behind the eight ball because of gambling debt. And he now owes the this mob money, but they're going to kill him no matter what. Mm. Um, so that was what I basically used. And then one of my good friends... Uh, he's been growing cannabis for 20 years and then he moved into dispensaries and all of that. And I was like, well, let me put my story in that world where um, someone is behind the eight ball and because of legalization, their business is going down, which is a true, true event. Um, the legalization of marijuana in California caused a lot of the dealers to go out because they couldn't get licenses. So you put that all together and mix it up and, that's exactly how the story came about. It's really interesting to me how when you look at the antagonist in the film, you could say that it's um, Salah Baker who plays the boss. I mean, he plays a really good heavy. But to me, the antagonist is the nature of bureaucracy. Um, here is this industry that was underground for a very long time. Um, it was very profitable. The government saw that, especially in Los Angeles. Prop Was it Prop 6, the law that passed over 64. in California? Yeah. Yep. Um, past that, and then pretty much the uh, the government and other in, in corporations got in on the action. And because of that, all these kind of little guys who were doing well for themselves got squeezed out. And I thought that was such an interesting thing how usually in crime movies, whenever the government is the antagonist, they're like chasing people down because they're doing something mm-hmm. illegal. Where in this movie, the government is the antagonist because they're getting in on the action of what was once an illegal act. It's just a, it's a, it's such a fantastic thing to just see and amazing kind of like a turn of events of the last 10, 20 years, I think. Thank you. Yeah, no, you know, it's very much that and like everything that could go against this guy is going against them. And you yeah. have a bit of a man versus man story, like also infused within that is like the 40s, 50s noirs, where it's a lot of your anti-hero and and man versus man or himself in this case. And, um, and yeah, like everything that could go against them, the government being the catalyst is going against them. I want to talk about the opening of the film because it's like this really great kind of like um, montage of, of scenes. It's kind of like the day in the life of this guy in the business that he has. Um, really great editing, really snappy editing. Um, Ryan Liebert was your editor in this. Yep. Um, you had the great kind of soundtrack in the background. You have Anthony with the narration as well. It kind of brings up up to speed about who he is, what he does, and what he's what he's going to lose. In regards to the context of what exactly these guys do and or how they used to go about doing it, did you have to take a crash course yourself into what the business is, business was, or did you kind of know what was going on already? I've I've had the luxury of knowing. So because of my good friend, um, who the story is based around, um, I've seen him starting like twenty years ago, growing in his bedroom and then getting kicked out of his apartment because his electric bills go way up moving into a warehouse in downtown LA to walking into that warehouse. And, and, and it's quite, for me, at least it's quite sexy when you open like these, these like plexiglass plastic doors and yeah. these, like, the, the sodium 
vapor, whatever they would call those lights, those fluorescent lights, and they come in, you just see the rows of marijuana plants. It's, it's quite sexy. And I've watched his trajectory as he went from a grower to dispensary owner. And then um, ultimately uh, what caused his business to stop growing, no pun intended, in, in 2016, 18 when Prop 64 passed. Um, so I knew a lot about the boots on the ground. And then the legal aspects, I've been playing the stock market and cannabis stocks mm. since like 2017, 2018. And I've been doing it with my dad. And I've been educating him on the laws and safe banking and and how it works with multi-state operators and, and all of that. So I know a lot about the laws. And I actually, I, I knew or know so much information that I had to, in that narration, it, that was the very last thing that we um, finished editing. When we finished the entire film, we were still cutting that because I had to keep taking information out because I was just giving too much information. Mm. Um, so The Last Deal isn't necessarily a film about marijuana, but marijuana and the trade of it and everything is a big component of it. Unless a filmmaker could have been tempted to try to make kind of like a stoner movie out of it, it's a temptation to do that. Did you at in any way whatsoever make sure that you didn't want to go down that path? Was there any kind of pressure for people maybe say, hey, you're dealing with weed, maybe we should put some comedic elements in this and all that? <laughs> or were you very much like, no, this is a real business, this is real stakes, and we have to make sure it's down the line in a way that we depict it? Yeah, it's a matter of my intuition and where I'm being pulled. And in writing the story, I never um, was pulled towards a direction of comedy or or towards a stoner film. If I thought that would would be the better direction, I would have went that direction. But for me, it was more of a Michael Mann thief, hmm. 1970s Cassavetes, early Scorsese um, type of, of crime film. Um, so I only use the marijuana element as our vehicle for what they're dealing in. Um, and, and then, and then with that being said, I made sure it was a very conscious effort that my spoiler alert, that the, um, our main character Vince never actually smokes. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And, and cause I, you're dealing with an anti-hero and, and, and the type rope or tight rope or or rope that you walk is is you want the audience to root for them uh, even though they're doing unethical things Mm. and so the more i could infuse that this is a good guy um you want to root for someone that you're not meant to root for well when you mentioned those filmmakers there that were inspiration like the michael manns cassavetes the early day scorsese i think the casting of anthony molinari goes a really long way in as as vincent because vincent is an old school guy there, he has a uh, he's a stand up guy, I guess you could say, right? He has an honor to him. There are scenes and moments in the film where the character is faced with different types of temptations, and he's always like, "No, I'm not going to go down that road." There's one particular scene where a, a, a woman really kind of makes herself available to him. He's just like, "I'm good, thanks," you know. And <laughs> right. I really like that about him because there's kind of like a um, uh, old school credibility and also a whole school standing by your principles um even when the shit hits the fan you want to make sure that you're walking the straight and narrow and you are who you are at the end of this journey as you were at the beginning i think um it's a really good thing i think carson anthony uh, Anthony, that worked the charm i mean uh, did you know of anthony beforehand have you worked with him before 
No. So uh, Carl Safario, who was my pr- producing partner on this and stunt coordinator, he um, very well established in the stunt world, goes all the way back to like the fall guy, I think was his first uh, gig. And he knew Anthony well, I think um, from Black Mass or um, a few other projects. And, um, and Carl recommended him because I wanted a stunt guy in that lead role so I could keep all the action on scene, make it very real. I didn't need a double because there was a lot of driving. Um, and the interesting that comes up with hiring a stunt person is you get all the driving too. So if you were to have an actor, most actors, some actors can probably do it, but to have a car screaming in into frame and then stop in the right part without looking bumbly, um, Anthony could do that. So he came about from Carl and then, um, and then I had it down to a few different stunt guys that I had in mind for lead. Anthony Red put himself on tape and he had an empathy and a vulnerability that no one else had. Mm-hmm. Um, and just the perfect age too, you know, it was like the perfect age to be this, this person. Like originally I was trying to cast somebody that was more my age when this was happening, like mid to late thirties. Um, but it worked out this way and it was just, it was just a perfect combination of events. And um, I'm so glad it, it worked out. Well, his age being in his forties and I'm in my forties as well. It's a, it's a really interesting age to work with because it's that time in your life where you kind of look back a bit and you think it to yourself, uh, is, is everything that kind of I've done so far led to where I want to be right now? And that's pretty much where he's at, right? He's like, I worked my ass off all this time and I got nothing to show for. And sometimes desperate blind people would do desperate things. So Yeah. Yeah. And, and all, all the stakes and, um, and not having like a face of a 20 year old, I think you feel more towards them because someone in their twenties like, can easily bounce, you know, yeah. whereas when you're hitting your late thirties and forties and even further, like it, it's, there's a lot more on the line. Yeah, absolutely. Speak about a lot on the line. You actually shot this during uh, COVID lockdowns, didn't you, in, in Los Angeles? You know, I keep hearing stories about um, some of my favorite filmmakers, especially shooting in Los Angeles and how they go about kind of like um, shooting in there and then staying ahead of kind of like permits and then breaking the rules. One of my favorite movies is um, To Live and Die in L.A., uh, the one okay. freak in the film. And there's a, there's a yeah. foot chase in an airport, and supposedly he wasn't allowed to do that. He's like, fuck it, William Peters just <laughs> run and shoot at me. <laughs> and I love hearing stories like that. When you're shooting your film, especially during like these lockdowns, where kind of like the the eye of authorities has been very kind of you know uh, you know on on everything, um, did you ever find yourself in kind of like hairy situations? Um, in, because you need to get out there. It's Los Angeles. You need to shoot LA. Um, does shooting outside more? Because I just the film I did notice about this film is more kind of like exterior stuff than interior stuff. Does shooting outside more kind of help you get, you know, I wouldn't say get away, but help you be in a position where you can do some more of that, especially during a very kind of a time of restrictive um, um, uh, congregation, I guess you could say. Sure. There's, there's a couple elements that go into it, like really quickly, like, because we're so micro budget, we can't afford a production designer. Right. But if I shoot outside, I can maximize Los Angeles. And you don't need to do much there to production design the river or something like that. Um, so we we had that benefit of using these very lush backdrops. And then in regards to shooting um, outside, we'd had no permits. And we did have run-ins with the cops a few times. But I've been, um, I've been guerrilla shooting for a, a while now, um, mix of permits and guerrilla. 
and I have experience shooting outside. So when I built the script, I built a, a very aggressive script that I knew that I could make, hmm. but like on an Uber level that would challenge every bit of my being and experience and all of that. And we did have, um, a few run-ins with the cops, um, but they were all fruitful because, like, I we, we had a very small crew. Like, you got a picture, our entire G&E package, which is, like, our grip and electric, all fit in the back of a Kia. Mm-hmm. So we had our DP, an assistant camera guy, and then a grip gaffer swing, which is one person. So your entire camera electric department is three people. And your entire crew, you have no makeup, no production designer, no script supervisor, um, none of those luxuries for us. Uh, which keeps which keeps everything really small. So when the cops do come, I can I can talk with them and be very respectful and say what we're doing. And a lot of times they'll leave. Um, every now and then they won't. Um, but I had I had a plan baked in that what I would do is if they ever I always had a plan B. So if they ever did come and we got kicked out, by the time they actually come to set to break you up is at least an hour or two. So you're going to get an hour or two of shooting no matter what. And when we're doing these shoots or these scenes, we're only there for two to four hours at max. So by the time the cops come, I might only have an hour or two of, of shooting left. And the only anxiety that I have is getting all my coverage. Mm-hmm. But I took my time and did it. And if the cops did come and tell you to leave, when the cops leave, I would go back and shoot. But I didn't have to do that, fortunately. But that was the plan that I knew in my head that I could do, that I could always get three hours from every location. Um, But, you know, for any advice for any young filmmakers or filmmakers in general that are doing this type of guerrilla shooting, is be very respectful and introduce yourself to everyone around you in your environment. And that's what I would do when we arrived to our set um, and there was a garage or a neighbor or whatever, I would go over there, introduce myself, shake it's not COVID it's COVID so I can't shake their hand but like let them know who I am what I'm doing we're making a YouTube video um you know a little white lie doesn't hurt uh it's still filming it's still filming it's all right exactly (laughs) I mean a couple of times we we, we would get someone who's a little bit more hip to to the game like like those don't look like YouTube cameras I was like (laughs) you know the prices are easier to come by nowadays but um but yeah, that's that's what we did. There was definitely a challenge baked in with that. And we did have run-ins with the cops. But um, if you're respectful and you respect your environment and leave things the way you you arrive there, that's the best way to go about it. You know, I was talking to a, a filmmaker a couple of days ago and he shot his film in Boston. He's a Boston filmmaker. And he was saying that um, even though there's Boston movies made in Boston all the time, that um, people like the community were still like very excited and involved and wanted to be part of that. Is Los Angeles the same? Is Los Angeles the same as in that community still excited and bold? Or is it because the industry is so embedded within Los Angeles that people are kind of like maybe a little more blasé or maybe even cynical about it? Yeah, so I'm from Boston and I have shot there before. Um, in L.A., I think you do have the benefit of, of you know, a superstar walks down the street. You're not going to have as many autograph hounds running after them and stuff like mm-hmm. that. You know, like people are a little bit more jaded here. So when you're shooting a movie, not everyone is coming outside. They're just coming out to like be looky-loos. So I think there's a baked-in knowledge base with all the residents here for what you're doing. They're like, okay, that's fine. And there's also, they're very hip to, to the games. So they're like, well, you know, usually location scouts will pay me to use my, my place. <laughs> so they're a little bit more hip to, to the game here. In Boston, 
I think you may have, I mean, they've been shooting a lot more there in the last 20, 30 years, but overall in some communities, I think you do have a little bit more of people that don't have as much experience with it. So, so yeah, they're more apt to jump in and help you and stuff like that. Um, but uh, you got to watch out for the union laws in Boston. That's a, that's a whole different ballgame than Los Angeles. Um, I want to talk about the photography in the movie. Dominic Lopez, who's your cinematographer, does a really great job. We talked about shooting outside. There's some really great interior scene shots as well. Um, great use of color. Prime colors, you know, you have the reds and your greens and the other things as well. Um, when it comes to talking about that kind of stuff, um, do you kind of like have color palettes in mind? Um, like this, the scene, for example, where um, Vincent is talking to the Algerians about buying their product, you need this kind of basement, it's like this kind of like nice kind of red. And the red can be used in another way as well, symbolic as to say, stop, don't, don't do anything, right? Right. Um, so do you, do you keep a lot of that stuff in mind about what colors you want to use in interior shots, especially if you're going to use like a really like thick layer of it in and within that interior shot? So that starts with um, your, your budget. So in this one, we knew our budget was going to be small. We we're going to have minimal lights. I knew I wanted to use a lot of warm and cool tones. Um, and I knew I could do that with minimal lighting and using what we had. Um, and then the conversation then goes over the Dominic when me and when him, him and I started working on the project and saying, hey, we want to do a lot of like warm tones, cool tones, use the neons um, and making sure we have enough lights to accomplish that. And then the marijuana lights naturally give those, yeah. those warm colors. And then um, finding locations that have those colors as well. So the um, the red room scene that you're, you're referring to, um, we had the option of going from red, blue, green, many different options in that in that room. And and I knew the owners of that place. And and I knew specifically to use that because it would have that look. And, and Dominic just did an amazing job, like, bringing it all out. He owns the red. And when I brought him aboard, um, I was looking for DPs that had a specific reel that really um, leaned into the warms and the cools. And, and he understands the color palette so extremely well. And it achieved all that. And then Jimmy, um, who colored the project, just did an amazing job just taking that vision and enhancing it. I really love the score of the film as well. Tony Fiala did a really fantastic job. You have this yeah. synth score in the movie. Synth scores have become really, really prevalent lately, um, especially in horror movies. I watch a lot of horror and everyone's jumped on oh, yeah. kind of like the um, the <laughs> nostalgia, Stranger Things kind of thing. And so it was nice to hear a synth score in your movie that was different than the other, okay. than the other type of scores oh, nice. as well because I thought the synth score in your movie um, had a real kind of like a momentum, a kind of like a like a a, a, a cadence to it that was really kind of to me was kind of like really kind of harkened back to a lot of the films as I mentioned before that I really I liked in the ones that um, I think you, I know you are a fan of as well. When you're looking at a score for a movie like this, are you kind of referencing kind of like these older um, scores from maybe say a Heat or from a I don't know um, or any other movies like that uh, and, and, and or maybe like um, what Wang Chung maybe did with um, To Live and Die in oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and in like and, and then saying I want something kind of like that but like for kind of like modern day sensibilities. It's exactly that. So you, you hit it right up on, on the head. So I knew like I'm making a very like 80s influence kind of movie in terms of look. Yep. Um, and then a lot of that, you know, you, you if you watch the first Terminator film and you hear the synth score to that, especially the bar scene where I think he shoots them up. Mm. It's quite a crazy scene. But um, I worked with um, Tony on that. And then Scott Toomey, 
who's actually Tony Fiala's brother-in-law. Uh, and I know Scott because I'm friends with the whole Fiala family. And Scott has his own synthwave radio show at night. So I was like, he has his finger on the pulse for all the the new uh, synthwave ar- ar- artists that I could achieve this this '80s Miami Vice, but yeah. a modern day. You know, yeah. I didn't I didn't want it to be cheesy. I wanted yeah. it to be modern day electric music, and um, and that's how that came about. And and he, um, if you listen to that the score over the end scene where he's going through the house. That's, that's directly from heat. When the bank robbery scene, mm-hmm. we, Ryan Liebert put that in. I forget if we talked about it prior, but uh, Ryan Liebert put that in. And, um, and I basically just had asked Tony to make something like that. So it doesn't sound exactly like the heat, but it's very much, if you know of heat and you know, that bank robbery scene, yeah. you hear that and be like, Oh, and then uh tangerine dream. So we found a, artist called LA Streethawk. And, um, and I knew I write a lot to Tangerine Dream. Um, and, and they had a, a song that sounds just like uh, one of the Tangerine songs from Risky Business. And, and that was no brainer. So, you know, you're kind of creating like this Risky Business soundtrack as well. You know, I'm a big fan of, of crime movies, crime content. And it's interesting how you know, doing this, I've been doing this for like 16, 17 years now. I've seen a shift kind of like in regional ways, how like crime stories have kind of shifted away from Los Angeles, away from New York City, and gone more to like the um, Ozarks and Appalachian kind of stuff and all that. And it made me wonder what what happened to the to the LA crime movie? Because it seems to me, number one, you have that shift. Because I think because the drugs are different now, right? I mean, it's, a lot of it has to do with fentanyl and stuff like that. And those regions are more affected than others. And I, but I also think number two, it seems to me that the LA crime movie has shifted to the LA crime series. Um, it's gone more small screen. Um, so when you watch a movie like like The Last Deal, um, and you know if if I ever get a chance to watch it on a big screen, I would jump at the ch- chance to do it because I want to I want to see all that in a big screen. It'd be awesome. Um, but what do you think it, it is that's like did that transition there? Because it just seemed like for a while there, you had like maybe for a few decades, like Los Angeles is really kind of this the hub of kind of like um, crime movies. And now it just seems like it's gone to a different regions of, of America. Yeah. So um, it's twofold. One is tax incentives. Mm-hmm. Um, so LA, uh, they're getting better in California, but it wasn't very film friendly. Um, so people were moving outside the state because of tax incentives. So, you know, you can shoot in Oklahoma, you can shoot in Louisiana, you know, in the last 10 years, you've probably seen a lot of Louisiana, um, a lot of Canada, you know, you can shoot in these other places and get 30% of your budget back. Um, that's a big part of it. The other part is it could have been an oversaturation of Los Angeles and people want to move out of that and see something different. Mm. Um, like look, Yellowstone is what the number one show in TV right now. Yeah. You couldn't be further from LA than that. So um, I would say it's those two pieces. Well, I'll tell you what, like I said in my introduction, I think you're breathing new life into the LA crime movie. I really do. I'm a big fan of those LA crime movies. You know, it's I've always been up with me. It's kind of like almost like the uh, hip hop battles in the 90s. Is the New York crime movies or LA crime movies? And sometimes <laughs> right. I can go either way, but there's something about Los Angeles where the, the look of it and, the, and a lot of the other things, um, components that go with it, especially like the um, the, the vastness of, the, of the, the area and like the space of it as well goes a long way. And I think you really utilize a lot of that really well in the last deal. And I, 
I absolutely, I, I really do love your watching a movie. Like I said before, it just hits a lot of the spots that I am looking for in a crime film. And for everyone for sure. else out there listening, and now in the US, in theaters, in video on demand. However, I recommend everyone check it out in theaters because, as I said, the visuals are great, the sound is great. Oh, by the way, speaking of uh, music soundtrack, any possibilities of that? Yeah, uh, we're buttoning up. I have all the artists on board to release a soundtrack. Awesome. Um, and uh, I'm sending out their agreements. And then I'll, I'm hoping to have the soundtrack on our website, um, which is Last Deal Movie. No, thelastdealmovie.com. Okay. I'm hoping to have that on there, hopefully within a week or two. It's a pretty sweet uh, soundtrack. So we feature some of the, the best synthwave artists out there. Um, I hopefully I can get Time Cop on, on there. Time Cop is huge. I don't know if you know of Time Cop, no, but our trailer, yeah, they're they're great. They're called Time Cop 1983. Okay, and um, uh, they're they're like the the pinnacle of the synthwave artists. Um, and uh, we have them on our trailer. So so they were gracious enough to give us one of their tracks for the trailer. Um, and hopefully I can get them to put the track on the soundtrack as well. That'll be awesome because, as I said before, like I've heard a lot of synth stuff lately, and everyone tries to be like a ripoff of John Carpenter. So it's nice to see that your right. school is different, you know. And I really enjoyed that. It's really completely enjoyed. different, yeah. Completely, absolutely. Um, yeah, Jonathan, man, thank you so very much for your time today. Congratulations with the film. Okay. Got great reviews. I think you're like on 100 on like um, Rotten Tomatoes. I'm going to add to that. I'm a, I'm a Rotten Tomato critic as well. Please keep that keep that perfect rating going. Um, yeah. I, Everyone listening, watch this film. I really recommend it. It's just a, such a great film. It's a cool movie as well. I thought it's like a real cool kind of vibe to it, and and I love the performances. I I, I just love everything about it. Thank you so much for the film, and congratulations you. to you. If, if, if I can give one quick little last note, um, we we are a very small film, and uh, we are in theaters, which is awesome, and we are on VOD, so you can get us on demand on Amazon, Apple. Um, whatever your favorite platform is. And I hi- highly encourage whoever can watch the movie to please rate it or review it. If you hate it, if you like it, um, because for us to be seen, people can't find us. We're not in the trending sometimes on certain platforms. So the algorithms, the way they work is uh, for smaller films such as this, the more engagement, the more they put them on their splash page. Um, so I highly encourage whoever watches it to please go over, rate it, review it. Um, And uh, thank you.